This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to the Red Seat Podcast. Today, I am joined by Brian Joyner of Baseball Prospectus Boston and Over the Monster. Uh, I should have introduced myself as well. I'm your host, Jake Devereaux, as usual. Um, but Brian, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Excited to uh, finally have the last member, uh, certainly not the least, but um, the, the final piece to the puzzle here of our podcast. It's going to be a rotating crew of everybody that you've heard so far, but this is your first show, so I'm sure you're pretty excited to get uh, involved in this. I'm the cleanup hitter, so let's clean up these topics. That's right. That's right. And we have a whole lot to talk about today. Certainly no uh, no lack of fodder from the Red Sox as of late. Uh, I find myself getting uh, really uncommonly mad at certain things that the Red Sox have been doing this far um, in April, which is I don't know if this bodes well for my health, considering it's April 25th as we record this, and I think I've already sworn like at the television at least a couple hundred times from things that I've seen. But um, one thing that I have been really happy about that I want to talk about right away is uh, Rick Porcello's renaissance as of late. Uh, Nick Canellis today wrote a really nice piece on Porcello uh, on BP Boston, so certainly check that out. Um, but He's been impressive. A lot of this has to do with, I think, Christian Vasquez coming up and calling some good games. But I wanted to know from you, Brian, is he off your worry list? Are you not concerned about him? And do you think he can sustain this going forward? Well, the the funny part about Nick's piece is that I am writing what will almost certainly be a worse version of that for Over the Monster tomorrow, a.k.a. the day this podcast will be up. So look for that. But I, I've done a lot of research, and yeah, I would say that my radar has come down. I'm, as we speak, we're watching him pitch against the Braves, which isn't really a good bellwether uh, if he doesn't give up any runs. If if he ends up getting knocked around, that wouldn't be a good sign, but doesn't look, knock on wood, like that's happening. But as Nick wrote, and as I was looking at the numbers, he it's really curious – what he's done to increase his strikeouts, uh, which includes going back to basics and throwing just a lot more sinkers and slowing the velocity down a little bit. And with him and unrelated, but also David Price uh, has seen his 
velocity go down, his strikeouts go way up, and he's giving up a lot more home runs. So I think it's interesting to see it from Porcello and Price. But what I would say is at the point where Porcello is right now, even though he's got a high ERA, he's not held to the same standards as Price. And for the standards that he is held to, I think right now there's a real reason to think that he can meet or exceed them. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, just how much he's been relying on that sinker. I think we all wanted him to continue to do that this year after doing it uh, towards the end of the year last year and having some pretty exciting results. But um, 58% usage so far, almost 59% usage of the sinker, um, is right up there with the highest usage that he's ever had for that particular pitch. He's also really mixing it up, throwing the cutter, throwing the curveball, throwing the changeup, and He's getting some pretty interesting whiff percentages off some of those secondary pitches as well. What do you think about how effective his changeup and his cutter have been in this early going? Well, I th- the the changeup looked uh, when I was looking at the stats today looked like it almost doubled in whiff percentage. Not not quite, but close from last year. And there have been increases in the cutter the changeup, and from what I saw, the fastball, now the fastball's just up a little bit from last year, um, but last year was considerably higher than it had ever been for him before, and he wasn't, he's never been a strikeout pitcher until he came back from the DL last year. So I don't think he's, I think he's right now looking like it's possible that he's fulfilling the prophecy that the Red Sox sort of made when they signed him. Prophecy is a bad way to phrase it, but their expectations when they signed him, I think, was pretty clearly that he would grow into the role for which he was being paid. And last year was awful until at the end of the year it looked really good. And I think this is the really good version of Rick Porcello, given that he's gone back to the sinker, which obviously his bread and butter and has always been his bread and butter, but his secondary pitches are now getting strikeouts, which if he can just keep the ball in the yard, that's a, especially in the AL East, especially for the Red Sox who need stability in the rotation, he could be exactly what they need. As far as his four-seam usage goes, he's throwing that less and less, but he seems to be getting higher whiff percentages on that. Is that because he's attacking different parts of the zone with that pitch? Is he going upstairs with that more, looking for a strikeout? See, this is – when I said Nick's piece was going to be better than mine, this this is the sort of detail I'm getting into. Um, I had not gotten that far uh, in in my research. I just – I was just looking at the percentages, and the the thing I noticed, as Nick mentioned, was that almost all of the, the home runs seemed to be coming on the cutter. But then as I – oh, man, I can't remember something else I read that uh, – oh, you know what? It was, it was Scott Pianowski on, uh, on Yahoo wrote that there were positive and negative signs, but even though he's given up uh, five home runs so far, he's allowing, in general, less hard contact. And that leads me to believe that 
there's a, a higher likelihood that this is sustainable and that those home runs really are just aberrations, just the balls that fly out of the yard sometimes uh, and sometimes they don't. And he's just gotten unlucky. So if you look at him as having gotten unlucky until now, that explains the 4.66 ERA. And if you do that, everything else falls into line. So I, I, that's what I want to do. Um, and he hasn't given me a re- given me a reason to not think that way outside of just playing baseball where everything comes back to pessimism. So anecdotally speaking, I've watched you know every start that he's made so far this year, and I do think that he has been working the ball up in the zone more. I'm sure you'll explore that more tomorrow as that piece comes out, so that's something to look for. But it does seem like a real breakout could be happening for Rick Porcello at this point. And I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but one of the things that um, we were talking about on the show last week with Matt Corey was um, just the advanced stats here, his XFIP being 289 and his Sierra being a career best mark so far in the early going of 254. I mean, is there enough here that you've seen in – Granted, you're early into the research process of actually making this piece, but do you think that there could be some signs here actually leading to a step forward all the way to a true number two starter where the Red Sox thought possibly this guy could develop into that when they signed him to that longer-term deal? I mean, I think given what we've seen so far, I wonder you know, how much of these improvements have to be sustainable for him to hit uh, an I mean, I, I don't think that an 80th, 90th percent per uh, percentile Pakoda finish is out of play right now. I mean, I think that's very in play. We're, we're looking up the ladder of what he can do. I, as I'm watching, he just got a uh, swinging strikeout on a four-seamer high up in the zone. And uh, lo and behold, uh, against against old friend AJ Pierzynski, no less. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that it's definitely in play now. It would be so sorely needed that it's almost scary to talk about because now if it doesn't happen, we're still floundering a little bit. But I think it's in play. I, I think that he would take. He might take the place of Buckholz, who I think has shown very little this year, uh, that, that even in his quote-unquote good starts, and even, you know what, even if you take away the, the home run he gave up the uh, other day to Colby Rasmus, I I don't see him as a number two. So Porcello might end up being, you know, there, there's the number two starter on the depth chart, and there's a number two starter quality average major league pitcher. And I think he is almost certainly going to be the Red Sox number two starter and has a good chance at being a legitimate major league number two starter. All right. So this leads me to a good segue then. So Rick Porcello is currently sitting with a 26.9% K minus walk rate right now, which is good enough to be third best in baseball amongst qualified starters right now. The guy who's just one-tenth of a percentage point behind him at 26.8% is the Red Sox ace, David Price, who has not looked um, as exceptional as that number leads us to believe so far in this early going. You did write about him last week for uh, BP Boston. Can you go into depth about how and if 
anybody out there should be worried about him. I mean, I don't think that many experienced baseball fans and certainly people who listen to the show are panicking at this point. But are there any warning signs right now that we could be be potentially not getting the David Price that we thought we were getting when we acquired him for $217 million in the offseason? No, I don't think there are. And the only reason I say that is that we knew that there was a possibility that – I mean we knew he's, what, 31? We knew how old he was and that this is when pitchers start to slow down a little bit. They, The Red Sox have played some – pretty heavy hitting teams and no matter who does the damage those teams can uh wear away at you let's just say that david price's start against atlanta this week i will worry about david price if atlanta knocks him around but at this point i he's still a pitcher in the al east and it's still a small amount of time i do think it's interesting that he is getting so many strikeouts and slowing the velocity down uh, across the board. And it's, it's really interesting to see him doing it and Porcello doing it. It doesn't seem to be working as well for him. And Price has said that he, he has to slow it down because he's getting a little older. At the same time, he said he's throwing slow because it's cold out. So I don't know which is the case and which isn't. I do uh, – go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, one thing I was going to mention about Price is that, um, you know, the peripherals obviously look good, and you've been talking about those. But career, over 232.1 innings pitched in March and April, um, Price has a 414 ERA. So there might be something to that. It is a little bit troubling because his 273 batted average against right now is significantly higher than the 256 that he's posted in those months um, where he has been not so good. Um, but it makes me feel a little bit better about the situation, that he admits basically that he's a slow starter. Yeah, and I, with, with players like him, especially pitchers who are workhorses, these are the guys that I am less likely to get upset over any single start because the idea is that he goes out there, he's very good and he will go through good stretches and bad stretches, but it's April and it's easy for us to put every start under a microscope. But in August, he's still going to be out there throwing every five days. And the, the value comes in him being out in volume and quality. So the quality would have to really go down for me to worry about the volume and quality going down enough uh, to actually uh, worry because I'm not – mostly I just don't want to spend the energy worrying about him because he's been so good throughout his career that the Occam's razor is that he's just going through a, t- a tough stretch. Yeah, I would I would bet – just about anything that that's the case. There's really no reason to worry about him. Um, and I think we've dispelled that notion here in the early going. He's also a better pitcher in the second half in general. It's not just April and uh, uh, March that trip him up. I mean, he's been right around a three ERA pitcher in the second half throughout his entire career. 
uh, in the later two months of the season. He typically works into the twos in the ERA. So he's certainly somebody who's shown that he can get stronger as the season goes on. Um, so we've talked a little bit at length about David Price and Rick Porcello, um, two guys who have been pretty good. I'm not going to waste any time talking about Clay Buckholtz because he is as enigmatic as anybody. He's been terrible. Uh, and there's not really anything that you can say about Clay Buckholtz at this point. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like th- that's just who he is, right? I think that he's a worse version of what he has been. I think that he is when we look at the when we think of what the best case scenario Clay Buckholtz is, I think that it is maybe in the rearview mirror because he just he doesn't seem to have it, any confidence and I have watched him enough that if he were to I'd be surprised if he reclaimed it. I would love him to find it but I just as you say I just don't think it's going to happen do you think he'll find it for any stretches this season or is this just is this how the season's going to go I mean that we we have had quite a bit of data that shows us that how he typically starts the season is indicative of how he's going to play out through most of the year Um, so so far it's looking like it's going to be pretty much a lost cause but if that's the truth even with a guy like Eduardo Rodriguez coming back to the rotation to give it some stability, you could be looking at two spots with Buckholtz and um, that fifth starter spot while Joe Kelly's out where you really don't have any answers. So, I mean, do you think he's got anything left in the tank in terms of giving the Sox anything useful? Well, he's probably got more than Joe Kelly. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. And Joe Kelly's replacement in Henry Owens didn't exactly uh, instill very much confidence either after dominating in the minor leagues. I wanted to talk a little bit about his first start this season because he went 3.1 innings, um, did not look good at all, walked a whole bunch of guys, uh, ended up getting pulled, and um, looked like things were going to get pretty ugly had he not been yanked from that game. So I was wondering if you got a chance to watch that at all and what your thoughts were on that. I did not see last night's game, but I, I don't – I don't – I've seen on Twitter people saying recently how bad could the Red Sox uh, be if their farm system has guys like Henry Owens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he's still a prospect. I mean, he's obviously has a long way to go. I, I just – it's crazy to think how important uh, Eduardo Rodriguez is to the team. And really how much hinges on him being able to go go out there and throw. Because if he can, you have him and Porcello and Price. And if you can set them aside, I mean, until Stephen, Stephen Wright should have, should be in there until otherwise, until there's any reason to take him out. I mean, he's a lock in my opinion from now on. Yeah. He has provided a tremendous amount of stability. And even if he gives us some of those bad Wakefield-esque outings where he goes out and gets totally lit up, I mean, he's going to spin at least a handful of good games out there. So I I think you keep him in. And it's considerably less frustrating to watch him get knocked around than it is to watch Joe Kelly walk or Clay Buckholz go to 3-2 on literally every batter and then give up a home run or walk them. 
And I'm totally with you. And I think that as far as Owens versus Kelly versus even Buckholtz, there's no good answer. The the good answer is once Eduardo Rodriguez gets back and only having to have one person theoretically to fill out the five-man rotation out of those guys, then it worries me less. But I, I don't see Owens beating out Buckholds for that spot, and I don't see him beating out anyone for that spot. And I don't see Joe Kelly beating it out. I just I, – I think that the Owens and Kelly uh, choice isn't even really a choice. I think you choose – other over those guys. And that might through, be through no fault of Henry Owens is, you know, he's, he's not, he's not, he's not an old guy. So I, I just think that in addition to being hurt, Joe Kelly is probably running out of chances. Uh, or at least I hope he is. Sorry. That was a lot of babbling, but I, it's, it's so uninspiring at the end of the Red Sox rotation. It is really uninspiring. And I think that, Maybe we should spend a little bit of time dissecting expectations for that fifth spot because between Joe Kelly and Henry Owens and you know whoever else is going to be potentially an option um, once Eduardo Rodriguez gets back, I mean there isn't a whole lot of good things that can come out of that. But from watching Owens, you almost do think that there was a reason why they went with Joe Kelly rather than Henry Owens. It's not that Joe Kelly has been good at all. I mean, we we watched him walk eight guys and only give up two runs a few starts ago before the shoulder impingement, and that was incredibly frustrating to watch too. But, I mean, Owens has been in the, the Red Sox system now since 2012, and um, he's 23 years old, going on 24, and the command just has not progressed the way that it should um, the fastball is a decent pitch for him. The changeup's a good pitch, but it's just not good enough to get by on just those two, especially when you don't have uh, great location or velocity with that fastball. So the more I watch Henry Owens, the harder it is for me to envision a scenario where he actually becomes a reliable starter. Um, that's where I, I tend to turn my eyes towards Brian Johnson, who's still working his way back from missing that time last year. And granted, his control hasn't been great in the early going. I, I think he actually walked five batters the last time he was out. But he's got about a 2.4 ERA at Pawtucket right now. I mean, how long do you think they wait to give a guy like Johnson a chance at this spot in the rotation? Um, or do you think that they're going to continue to go back and forth with these two guys? Oh, I don't think they wait at all. I think they do it. Sooner rather than later. I don't think they have anything to lose. I think it's a really good uh, choice. I, I, there's, there is nothing to lose by doing it. I mean, if Joe Kelly is your better option, why not give Brian Johnson a try? Look, I know Joe Kelly has had some good starts, but I just – we can do better. <laughs> we can do better. And I think that there, for all the reasons you say – that Owens doesn't look great. I mean, they've given Brian Johnson some run before, so I don't know why they wouldn't do it again. Out of those options, what does your gut say out of those? I mean, are you more of a Johnson fan like uh, me and Ben Carsley are over Henry Owens, or are you 
still in the, that camp that sees the potential that Owens has to be more of an impact strikeout guy. And is that still more enticing to you than the more boring five starter package that Brian Johnson looks to have? Uh, with this rotation, I would adore the boring five starter package. I would like to, if we have to fill our rotation spots, not going down first our one, then our two, then our three. I'll, I'll take the five. If we know the one, we have a two, and then we can figure out the pieces. I think stability is the by far what the Red Sox need. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's the thing that really draws me to him is he's a guy who, uh, when healthy and correct, he tends to walk fewer than three batters per nine um, and looks to be the type of guy that could come out and give you a serviceable game. It's not hard to envision him having a stretch run where he doesn't give up more than four runs. And at this point, it's uh, it's kind of sad to say, but um, you know that's really the threshold that we're looking for out of our fifth starter. Anybody who doesn't give up more than four runs is pretty golden at this point, right? Yeah, and that's even with the the downgrade in bat from Swihart to Vasquez. I, I still think that we're just well, at least theoretically, if Hanley hits, we're capable of scoring a ton of runs. Um, but I'm not worried about the run scoring. I'm just not. Yeah, this is starting to sound like a podcast uh, over the course of the, the three shows that we've already done in tonight where we just harp on this rotation. But really, the reason why we're doing this so much is because it's just by far the most glaring weakness of this team. I was looking through some team stats last night at about 1 o'clock in the morning because, you know, that's what I do after the Red Sox, uh, you know, debacle when they let the game get tied up 5-5 and we'll get into Kimbrell later um, but their defense is one of the best in the league right now their offense has been one of the better offenses in the league um, there's really not a whole lot to complain about outside of the pitching on this team and I think the rotation is the easier thing to talk about because when you start digging into what could possibly be going on with Kimbrell, there's just too many unknowns at this point. And we'll talk about that. I guess we can just get into that right now. But um, Kimbrell has looked pretty bad in terms of his control since I saw him last weekend against the Blue Jays when he struck out the side against their two through four hitters. Um, since then, he's put a lot of men on base. And one of the most frustrating things to me, especially last night, is against a, a dead fastball hitter in Colby Rasmus, he fed him fastballs that entire time. And I don't want to hear that that pitch that he threw to him, that he hit out of the park, was a well-executed pitch. It was down in the zone. It was inside. I don't care. You possess one of the best breaking pitches in baseball, and you're not just feeding this guy breaking pitches. I mean, where's the decision-making there? And... <laughs> As much as I'm against the Christian Vasquez, Blake Swihart, who's a better game caller, small sample size, that's the second day in a row that that exact same thing happened with Colby Rasmus batting and the Red Sox pitcher who's breaking. I mean, the pitch Clay threw, Clay Buckholtz threw twice to Rasmus beforehand. He could not, he couldn't have looked worse to the point that they were saying in the booth, of course he should show, he should throw the curve again because he, Rasmus can't hit it, but he threw the fastball and got taken deep. And then Kimbrell did the same thing. So I don't know. I don't know what the thinking was there. It seemed bad. This is, I think just the worst 
case scenario uh, for Kimbrel because when you get a closer, all you all you want is for him to come in, especially a big ticket closer. You just wanted him to come in and just knock down the first few saves. Just just get him. I just want to see him, put him in our pocket, and then if you blow some, that's fine. To happen at the beginning, in addition to his changing leagues, is uh, is just really disheartening. At the same time, I I do think he will. He's just been too good for so long. It's we've said the same thing about David Price. It's easier to believe that a reliever could sort of just lose it all at once than it is for me to believe that David Price could. Yeah, and it and it's. And it is certainly worrisome. I'm not it, – it's not natural for me to look at what Kimball's doing and say, yeah, 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 he'll be fine. I do think that is probably the right answer, though. I agree with you. I think it's just really a confusing mental thing, though, because right now I've got the numbers in front of me. Um, Craig Kimbrell, he's a two-pitch pitcher. He throws a, a killer four-seam in an exceptional curveball. Um, his curveball over the course of his career has generated whiff percentages well into the 20s. This year, it's actually one of his best rates so far in the early going, 25.7% whiff rate on that pitch. Um, much better than his fastball, more than double what he's getting for a whiff rate there. Colby Rasmus right here, career 330 hitter against sinkers, career 256 hitter against um, four-seam fastballs. Both of these pitches he's slugging well over 500 against. Against the curveball, he's batting 173 against it lifetime, slugging only 358 against that pitch. How do you not know that? How do you not have that information on these hitters? Especially when you look up and down at the Astros lineup right now, and they've got four or five hitters that you have to worry about, and then there's just nothing at the bottom of that lineup. How do you not study these guys' tendencies? And is this a failing of the catcher, the pitcher, the manager? I mean, where do we place the blame here for not feeding this guy curveballs? I do. I, I don't know. It, you either I either can just not give you an answer because I don't know or just say that it belongs to everyone in a small way. I do think that he Rasmus still did have to hit that. The home runs, which is not an easy thing to do in the easiest of cases. That being said, you don't even need to go to the stats with Rasmus to know that he is a very specific type of baseball player who can hit fastballs and not hit breaking balls and is a good all-around player, and that is exactly how he stays in baseball. So I, it's, it is maddening to me that it would happen once, let alone twice. I just hope that they can learn from it. I, I the, everything has gone wrong with the rotate, except for Porcello, who is doing to the Braves what one would expect. Everything about the, I guess Wright has been good too, but most of what has happened with the rotation has just been baffling. And and this is in a, in a rotation that is baffling from top to bottom this might be the most baffling thing i've seen yeah it is it's very confusing one other thing that i wanted to bring up rotation and uh bullpen aside is managerial as well um there's been a lot of talk up here in boston um about you know how long is Farrell's leash going to be at this point in the season this the Sox are nine and nine um they're in a fine position in what 
looks to be a pretty bad division. I think that Baltimore is probably going to come back to earth a little bit. But one of the things that's just so frustrating is when the lineup comes out and it comes out like it does tonight. Granted, we're playing a glorified AAA team in Atlanta right now who I think has a pretty good potential to be battling it out with the Milwaukee Brewers for the worst record in baseball this year. But after the top three hitters, Betts, Pedroia, and Bogarts right now, um, Shaw is playing first. No problem with Shaw in the lineup, but where's Hanley's bat? They're playing Rutledge at third, Brock Holt in left field, Bradley in center field, Vasquez in center uh, in at catcher. There's just not a lot of punch there after Travis Shaw. So, I mean, what's the logic here in the early going as to how many games we've seen um, such empty back halves of the order? You know, I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago uh, about Farrell in the first couple of weeks trying to get everyone some playing time. And I said it was a little it was early to be nitpicking at the decisions. I still think it's early, but I think that it's pretty clear that maybe not that John Farrell is bad at this, but that he could be doing better because even if you're getting people playing time, there's something as simple as Chris Young playing almost exclusively against righties when is the single thing he cannot do. And he keeps getting his playing time days against righties. I'm less worried about today's Ortiz and Hanley thing because from as I understand, Ortiz was supposed to have a day off anyway, and Hanley had not. Hanley has played every game to this point, so they cho- since they got in so late tonight, they just okay. You know what? This will be the game you sit out. And frankly, Hanley needs to sit out a game because he's not hit that. That's early spike aside. He's not really hitting very well. I do think that the lineup, just the lineups, as you say, the 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 back halves. I don't know if that has ended up being the difference in a lot of the games, simply because it seems like when the Red Sox bats have gone silent, they've just been dominated like the, not Stroman, the Estrada, when Estrada was just untouchable that one day. I don't have a lot of confidence in John Farrell's short and long-term ability to balance playing time needs with uh, efficiency. Let's put it that way. So going forward here, I mean, how much longer do you think that they're going to give him control of this team? We've got a guy on the bench in Tori Lovello who we haven't even mentioned on the show so far. We're a month into this podcast and we haven't even brought up Lovello's name. Um, You know, listeners, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong there, but I don't think we have. Surely we didn't see this type of managing at the end of last year. And I think it's it's always you're looking through rose-colored glasses when you're looking at a stretch of time where the Red Sox were extremely successful at a point in the season where the games didn't mean that much to them because they were basically mathematically eliminated when they played well. But still, I just don't remember that many times where I was scratching my head at decisions that he was making either with the lineup or with the bullpen. And I think a rare good point was made on uh, Boston Sports Radio up here recently by Lou Merloni 
who was saying that with, when it comes to bullpen management, you always need to have at least, or you need to strive to have two of your three back-end options available to you at any given point during a game. And I think far too many times so far this year, we've seen games where either Kimbrell and Koji aren't available, or Koji and Tazawa aren't available, or some combination of those three players find themselves unavailable and then you have situations happen like when Matt Barnes came in in that key situation last week and ended up giving up the huge run and losing the game. So it's just it, – it's seeming like he could do a much better job on that front as well. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how he's managed the pen so far. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not uh, – I don't think he's a very good in-game manager. And I, I think that extends across the from the lineup, you know, from the from the lineup to the decisions he makes with the bullpen. So what to add? I don't know what his relationship with management is like because that is what it comes down to. I, I think with the manager, it's always a comfort thing, and. I don't know what sort of pre if Dombrowski at all are looking for a pretext to get rid of him. I it wouldn't be the first time the Red Sox have done that with Dombrowski. I mean, bringing him aboard was just uh, toppling the apple cart. So I would just say that if it came to the point where it happened, I would not be surprised and I would not be crushed by it because if it comes to that point the Red Sox will have spiraled again and they can't he can't spiral four out of five years three out of four is plenty yeah I agree and I think that it's still early enough in the season where if he is going to be replaced within the next couple weeks or so if if that's a possibility that the pen can certainly still be saved at this point. There's not too many guys who have been overworked. I think it's been a, a case of him overly relying on some guys and not using guys in the right situations. But when you look at how the Red Sox bullpen has actually fared to this point during the season, um, every member of the Red Sox bullpen, aside from Koji Uihara, um, Craig Kimbrell, and Noe Ramirez, who has been a little up and down, has an ERA under four right now. So that's pretty good. I mean, we've got Robbie Ross, Tommy Lane, Matt Barnes, um, Janichi Tozawa, Heath Embry. These guys are all performing well. We think Kimbrell's going to snap out of it. And Koji actually looked exceptional through the, the first uh, few outings that he had. And he leads the team, or he's second on the team, I should say, in batting average against with a 115 average. So I'm not in the least worried about him either. So I think that unit is still in a fairly good position. I mean, do you feel like it's still a strength moving forward, especially with Carson Smith working his way back? I was going to say, if Kimbrell has lost a little bit, it's possible that Carson Smith would be the best arm in that bullpen if he is able to replicate or improve on what he did last year. So I'm not worried about it. I would just like to get them leads. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so here we are again coming back to, what, the starting rotation here. Um, there isn't a whole lot of worry in so many other spots, but there it is. 
Um, let's move on a little bit. I want to talk about a few key cogs to the team and Bogarts and Betts. Um, really the future of the club. We talk about them at length uh, quite a bit on the show. But both of those guys really scared the crap out of me this past week in terms of uh, really almost hurting themselves in a pretty bad way. I was wondering if you got to see either of those uh, potential injuries that happened to both Bogarts and Betts. Betts with the slide and Bogarts taking that pitch off the wrist. Did you see any of those? I I did not. I don't just, – just ball off the wrist just makes me think of Nomar and just terrifies me yep. to no end. Uh, what what happened with Mookie? Mookie, uh, he, he slid into the base uh, head first and looked to have severely jammed a finger, but uh, he was okay. He got up and he was fine. And, you know, more importantly, these guys are now 18 or so games into the season uh, and are both riding the ship like we kind of knew that they would. They're both batting 270 at this point, and they're going to be incredibly important parts of the uh, team going forward. But it just really scares me whenever you see guys with that much importance doing things that are going to keep them out for a long term. And especially when Sox fans like us who have been around watching the team through many years and have seen what happened to Nomar. I mean, when I saw that Gregerson pitch um, clock Xander Bogarts on the wrist, I was just like, oh, oh, no. Like just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it's going to get so much worse. So we were very fortunate in that regard not to have that happen to uh, either of those guys. So just wanted to make a note of that real quick. I do think that Mookie has a very physical way of playing that I could see him being. I hope he's not injury prone, but I just think the way he plays the game could lend itself to being in proximity to people and walls and whatnot at high rates of speed, mostly owing to the fact he's very good at all these things. Um, but which is to say that does not surprise me. Yeah. It, it makes you want to see him, you know, wear protective equipment when he is on the bases, especially, you know, things to prevent his fingers from bending if he is sliding. Cause he is going to be a really active guy on the base paths. But I mean, there's only so much you can do with these guys. Uh, you gotta, you gotta kind of let them hit where they're comfortable, and things like getting hit on the wrist by a pitch are gonna happen. And you know, it, you gotta let the kids play, right, Brian? We do. And you know, you said they're the future. They're not even the future. They're the present, man. They, they are. really are. That is absolutely true. But let's talk about the future here a little bit. I want to go down on the farm. Um, and talk about some of the guys that are uh, playing pretty well down there. Uh, we've talked pretty extensively when we go down on the farm here on the show about how the big four prospects are faring in the system. Um, Benintendi, Moncada, Espinosa are all continuing to have really superlative years down on the farm so far in this early going. Uh, Rafael Devers is still not hitting really at all, batting about 143, I believe, on the season. But one guy who has rebounded in a huge way so far in this early going is Michael Chavez at third base. Um, he's batting well into the 300s right now with some pop, and uh, he had a pretty down year last year. So I was interested to see, Brian, what your thoughts were on him long term and whether or not you think it's still somebody who could impact the Red Sox future. Well, I don't know when uh, I just – was looking up right now and uh it looks like he is going to have surgery on possibly have surgery on a thumb ligament uh 
So that is unfortunate. Um, it looks like that uh, that could happen. Uh, Alex Spear reported. So, unfortunately, I think we have to wait until that sorts itself out. I, I do think that uh, it's still. I would say it's still early, but if you're hitting with his numbers, he's was hitting three, four, five comfortably in the three and a half with uh, the batting average. It's always good. It's always it's always good uh, to see that, um, but sort of taken aback by this uh, injury news. Sorry. Yeah, I had no idea about that when I was looking up his stats this morning. So that is certainly a huge hit. Um, as far as soon, yeah. As far as what he's been able to do so far, though, it's been super impressive. I mean, last year at the same level, over 190 games, he was striking out nearly 30% of the time. Um, and so far in the early going, over 15 games, granted a small sample size, he had cut that rate in half to 15.4% while not losing any bit of power. Um, so he reportedly reworked his swing pretty extensively. I hadn't been able to uh, see any of his at-bats this year on my MILB TV package yet, but um, that really is a huge blow for the team. He's going to miss some time developmentally. He's 20 years old, going on 21. He would turn 21 in August of this season, so um, hopefully he doesn't miss too, too much time there because it looked like the first-round pick was making some strides. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, what 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 uh, you were seeing, it's it's unfair to compare really anyone to Mookie's development and how unbelievably fast it went. But it does happen for really young players. They when they put things together, their development can go really fast uh, because of their ability to absorb and learn and uh, produce just depending on how good they are, how hard they work, whatever. This is really unfortunate. Uh, I, I hope that he's able to, if he can get back to 90, 80% of what he's doing already, I'll be still be really confident uh, in him because he was doing so well. Yeah, certainly looked like an early favorite for uh, most improved prospect in the system, but um, well, we'll turn to somebody who is healthy and uh, who did get the call recently up to the big leagues uh, in Pat Light, a big reliever. Um, certainly heard a lot about him, Six foot six, throws the ball about a million miles an hour. Uh, his only knock has been he hasn't been able to locate it with consistency, but so far in the early going at Pawtucket, he's been fairly impressive, and he did get the call up to Boston. So I was wondering what you were expecting out of him and whether or not he was somebody that you think Sox fans should get excited about. I think he could be someone that would be, might be really fun because he's obviously at the front end of the bullpen. And if you have a guy coming in to get a big out in the sixth or seventh inning, throwing a hundred miles per hour, that gets your juices flowing. I mean, that's, that's exciting. And I, uh, it's all you know. It's all going to come down on, come down to how he does. But it it reminds me sort of a, and I didn't like him, but Jabba Chamberlain, yeah. um, when when he came up and for a few months it was just insanity when he came in the game and he would come in at at you know really widely varying times and it was really fun because you could see him in the sixth inning just just throwing gas. So 
if light can come in and, and be effective, he'll be great because everyone loves someone who throws hard unless it's Kyle Farnsworth, in which case he's just Kyle Farnsworth. Yeah, nobody likes Kyle Farnsworth. Nobody likes Kyle Farnsworth. You know, I will, I will forever picture Java Chamberlain um, just covered in gnats. You remember that game where – That was one of my favorite baseball games that ever happened. That was – It was like a that, plague. It was it was biblical. Yes, and it was uh, – and it and he had been on unhittable literally the whole year, and then he got attacked by those midges, and <laughs> and he gave up the game-winning run or game-tying run. Um, oh, that was so great. So what's the difference between a gnat and a midge? I don't know. I think that the – the midges live on the lake. Okay. They lay their eggs in the lake, whereas I think gnats just live wherever. But that's why the midges were swarming in from the lake for whatever reason. I like the idea that this you know, colony of millions of midges decided that Jabba Chamberlain was the best place to lay their eggs. Doesn't he look like a safe little place? Yeah, it's like you think that – I mean it's the fact his name is Jabba is amazing. Yeah. Because you know that Jabba the Hutt midges would be all up in that. Yeah. You, you're asking your fellow midge, hey, where were you born? Yeah, I was hatched in Jabba. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> Hutt or Chamberlain? Yeah. I don't, even, I don't know. I'm a midge. <laughs> oh, man. We're, we're getting off topic here, but it's a whole lot of fun. Um, so let's talk about some of the upcoming games here the Red Sox have on their slate. Um we, we were really excited on the last show about the potential that the Red Sox had to maybe grab five out of the last six when the, we looked at those pitching matchups. And I thought they should have swept in Houston based on the matchups. And I thought we had a really good chance of getting two out of three uh, from Tampa. Didn't end up working out that way exactly. And nothing has in this early going. But um, looking at the upcoming schedule, I think that things look pretty good. Right now, currently, we have a pitching matchup, a real good duel going on between Julio Tehran and Rick Porcello. That game is scoreless, and I believe we're in the sixth inning right now. Um, sixth, yeah, sixth inning. Um, about to be the seventh. And we've got a few other matchups this, this week that I think really favor the Red Sox. Um, David Price versus Matt Whistler coming up tomorrow. Um, Bud Norris versus Stephen Wright. The way Wright's been throwing the ball, I think that could be a really winnable start. Um, you had me. You had me at Bud Norris. Yeah, exactly. He's been really useless for a, a tremendous amount of time. It's really funny. He still continues to get work, but he does. Um, but then we've got Julius Chassin versus Clay Buckholtz. And well, Chassin is not the most impressive pitcher in the world. Um, neither is Clay Buckholtz. So that one, I have uh, a little Chassin. bit less faith in. And Chassin has put together a sneaky little, nice little run here. Um, he's – that being said, the Red Sox better win all these games against Atlanta. I don't – three out of four would be acceptable. <laughs> really, they just need to win four. And, um, and as we're about to talk about the Yankees, I mean, this is a really – as far as light hitting, it's going to be tough to find seven games in a row – with hitting this light uh, for for the Red Sox pitchers, which might be exactly what uh, they need. Yeah, I agree with you. So let's just go down the line here. Tehran versus Porcello, that one's going on right now. 
So we won't call that one, but Price versus Whistler, obviously just a massive advantage for Price, right? That's a must-win game. If he doesn't get back on track against them, like you mentioned earlier in the show, we've got some huge problems, right? Uh, Yeah, that would – nice. Jackie Bradley Jr. just hit a home run. Oh, excellent. Uh, breaking the tie. Breaking the tie. So good. Now let's hold this lead. Um, Yeah, I – Price, price better. I, I, people can go as crazy as they want if Price gets lit up tomorrow and Matt Whistler uh, strikes us down. Yeah, that would be really unfortunate. How about Bud Norris versus Stephen Wright? Yeah, we'll go with Stephen Wright. I think so. There's, there's not a whole lot to like about Norris. Hasn't been in some time. So, um, that Chassin versus Buckholtz start though. That is intriguing. Buckholtz has not been good. Although what's frustrating is, and if anybody follows me on Twitter, which, you know, I'm not the best follower in the world, but I do tweet about uh, Clay Buckholtz starts pretty frequently because um, at times he just pitches like an absolute ace for stretches in the game, and it's super frustrating. Um, but this is going to be an intriguing matchup because Jules Chassin is sort of that type of guy too. For stretches at a time, he can look super dominant and then the wheels can just come off so i know you wanted to talk about chassin a little bit and what he's been doing in this early going who do you see as the favorite in that matchup you know i would say this is one of those where you can given that clay buckholz is prone to outthinking himself on the mound you'd be like okay well it's given that chassin and buckholz are so similar and chassin has been up and buckholz has been down let's pick the opposite then you say, wait, wait a minute. No, maybe that's what they would think. So let's go the opposite of that. Say Chassin keeps it up. So I, logically, I, I should choose the poison in front of me, not the poison in front of you. Uh, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'm going to take Buckholz. By a nose, huh? Just because the hitting is so bad that if, if Clay has anything, he should be able to get away with some stuff fun fact about chassin in the early going 24.6 percent k minus walk rate right now he's only walking 2.9 percent of batters he faces while striking out 27.5 percent that's pretty good i'm gonna go with chassin in this one Mm, that's good i hope that that is something that works on the mets lineup and doesn't work as much on the red sox but I don't blame you for taking Chessine. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the, the real meat of it, though, because the Red Sox finally have their first series with the Yankees, who uh, are struggling this early going. And, you know, they're not too far behind everybody else because nobody else has really pulled ahead in this division. But I think these matchups could be pretty favorable to the Red Sox. Um, the first one's Dicey, Henry Owens versus uh, Masahiro Tanaka. I think clearly we have to give the edge there to Tanaka and the Yankees in this first matchup, right? Yeah, that's a that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, the, the best you can hope for in this situation is Owens doesn't let the game completely get out of hand, um, and the Red Sox can club their way back into this one, but uh, that's looking like an L. But then the Red Sox are set up very well. Uh, Rick Porcello versus uh, Michael Pineda. Um, Pineda has just been god-awful in this early going, really getting teed off on. And then David Price versus Nate Eovaldi in that stuff that I just love. I love Eovaldi's stuff, and it never pays off. So um, I think those are 
pretty pretty big advantages for the Red Sox. What do you think? Yeah, I I do too. I watching oh, Rick Porcello just bunted for a base hit. I I'd be tempted to take him against Pineda, and I definitely take Price against Uvalde, Though Uvalde is uh, capable of pitching, as you as you noted, he's got great stuff. He's the he's the New York Yankees. Joe Kelly, though, I would say he's probably better than Joe Kelly. He is better um, than Joe Kelly. He yeah. certainly has stretches where you're like, why is this guy not elite? Yeah. So I would say that, man, between those three matchups, the Red Sox, you know, even though I'd say we'd give them two, they probably have more like 1.75. But, again, the offenses make a uh, make a big difference, I think. So anything less than four out of seven wins in this next week stretch would just be really bad. Yes, and I and I would I try as to to wait as long as possible for making declarative statements like that. But given how bad the Braves are, yes, you got you got to finish above five hundred this week. Otherwise, come on, guys, come on. Okay, here's where I'll leave you, Brian. Before we end the show here. If the Red Sox go into this week-long stretch and they come out on the other side of the Yankees series and they've only won three out of this last seven games, they drop a couple in Atlanta, get creamed by the Yankees, is that it for John Farrell? No, but I would say that if it happened two weeks in a row, that yes. I, I think that we're not one week away. I think we're not one bad week away, but I think we are two bad weeks away. All right, you heard it here first. The alarms are sounding early. We'll watch for this week. It's going to be really important. Uh, Brian, you want to let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter in case they want to give you a follow? Sure. Uh, it's just at Brian Joyner, B-R-Y-A-N-J-O-I-N-E-R. All right, and you can find me over at, at @devjake, and uh, you can find both of our writings at Baseball uh, Prospectus Boston. And Brian is also at Over the Monster again. So, Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. It's going to be the first of many times that you're on this summer. So uh, very much looking forward to it. Me too. All right. Thanks, and uh, we'll be with you guys next time. Thanks.